Welcome to Microsoft SaaS Stories, featuring companies that are on a journey to SaaS or software as a service. In today's conversation with Zamo, we learn about their conversational AI platform and the growth they have seen since publishing in the marketplace. No matter where you are in your SaaS journey, we hope you can learn by hearing from industry experts. Today I'm with Nick Spagnola, senior software engineer. Uh, he's um, a senior platform engineer at Zamo, and I'm here with Stacy Kyler, director of operations at Zamo. How's it going, you two? Good. How are you? Good. Yeah, well, good. thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm glad that I was able to get both of you in here so we can cover, you know, both sides of the of the SaaS coin, some of the, the business and some of the technical and get a really good conversation going. So I think what we should start with is, you know, what does your company focus on and what are the uh, what are the products that you have? Yeah, I'd be happy to to kick us off with that one. So Zamo is a conversational AI platform. And if we kind of step back and we look at what inspired us to start in the very beginning, um, we were looking at an industry where enterprises have a need and a desire to, to have conversational AI. And in, initially, we started looking at voice assistance, so creating a user-friendly interface for enterprises to create content and publish to the available voice assistants quickly realized that while they also had that desire, they also said, well, hey, can you do chatbots? Can you do IVR, telephony? And so we found ourselves quickly developing a product that, again, user-friendly interface where enterprises can create conversational AI content and publish that to any of those communication channels that they desire to publish to um, from one easy-to-use platform. And from there, as far as the, the what products do, do we have, we have two. And we'll get, I know I'm, you're going to ask a lot of questions about what those two mm -hmm. products are. And Nick will give us a lot of insight into those on the technical side. But we have two products. One is our SaaS version, which is exactly what I described. But it all resides on Zamo's Azure tenant. And then we have what is called the Zamo Managed Application. And what that does is that allows the exact same pro product to reside on the customer's Azure tenant. It. And again, we'll get into more details about what all that entails. Wow. I just have to say, this has to be good timing too, with, with the proliferation of AI right now. And I mean, that's, that's like dominating the, uh, the news cycle. So good job on, uh, on timing this, <laughs> you know, being ahead of the curve here. So, um, you know, you mentioned, I know you have, uh, two different models, but like just SAS in general, what first made you consider a SAS model? Like what, what was appealing to that, uh, for you? So I can I can kind of start with that from sure. the the customer and the, the Microsoft side. I don't think that there was ever a question about the product itself being a mm. SaaS model because we saw the the issue that the industry had was there was it was too complicated. It was too much of managing all of the different components that were required to build conversational AI, and it was too uh, time consuming. Required too many uh, staff. And and then also uh, was way too expensive. And so you, you know, you hear stories about the like the Bank of America bot that was built that was, you know, really successful, but crazy expensive. Mm. Um, and so it was like, how can we do this and how can we make this accessible to enterprises? Um, and SaaS seemed like the right way to go. So just from like a, a high level customer perspective, that would be my thoughts on that one. 
Oh, I gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Just, so it just made sense right up front. I love that. I love that. And then like, what is, what does SAS mean to you? So, I mean, we, we like to talk about SAS on the show, but what does that, that me actually mean to you? How do you think about SAS? Uh, I'll take it. So I think, mm-hmm. uh, as Stacy said, from the beginning, we always saw ourselves as a SaaS um, company, mainly because we wanted to take away the complexity of a lot of this from customers and just offer a very easy package for, through which we could handle all the dirty work. Uh, and SaaS has like a very all-encompassing kind of definition these days. Mm-hmm. Um, but at its core, it's still just kind of a, a centrally hosted application um, where that we license via a subscription, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think really where it's allowed us to focus though is to take away the complexity of something um, and and package it up easily. Right. So for your customers, that's that's what they're looking for. Yeah, and as Stacey mentioned, when we first started with the voice applications, one of the tricky things is you have to create one on each platform, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have to have a login, you have to like deploy the it to it. And so we just kind of made a commitment to do all of that for them. And there's some like tricky things we had to do early on. Um, but the crux of it was take away as much of the complexity and the, the difficulty that people don't want to deal with and then show them just exclusively the piece they do, which is how to create a conversational AI. Right. Exactly. So let's kind of dive into like what you actually built and then also, you know, touch on some of the Azure services that you used while building that. Sure. So we have, um, there's kind of two sides of the coin. Um, we've got the Microsoft side and then we have, uh, our side. And so initially the company, um, had a, just has a standard SaaS model where we host everything on our Azure tenants. Um, people come in, authenticate and, um, they can create a business and then deploy on everything. Um, but then, uh, fairly early on into the company, we saw the procurement process for, um, for customers on the enterprise side is a very long sell. You know, there's a lot of complication with that. And oftentimes there's a lot of complication around the logistics of it, you know, just actually processing POs and things like that. Um, and so Microsoft's marketplace became, um, really attractive to us. Um, initially just the SaaS, uh, there's a Azure SaaS application that we've got. Mm-hmm. And effectively what that allows us to do was take our existing SaaS application that people could go to Zamodata AI and, and log in and use. Um, and now they could create that same um, subscription with us just within Azure. So Azure kind of just handles the billing side of it and then just throws us the customers once they've already paid and are ready um, and with a little token and then we uh, authenticate them via that. So the on one side, there's our kind of standard one and on this other, there's the the SaaS, uh, the SaaS side or the SaaS uh, marketplace application. Um, and then that was kind of a gateway for us into what we eventually built and is now um, a very big driver of customers is the Azure managed application. Um, and that, uh, if you're familiar, is a much more extensive process where we have built like an entire infrastructure package uh, via ARM templates and Bicep um, and allow people to deploy onto their own tenant. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, but it's kind of unique in that it's for their perspective, we still manage everything. So Microsoft kind of creates the sandbox and everything for us to work within, and we can still deliver the product essentially like a SaaS, um, where like they don't have to deal with the Azure stuff, but we also gain the, the benefit of it being on their tenant. And so the data governance, uh, the security model they like and everything. So uh, to our point earlier, SaaS has really widened, you know, but from a customer's perspective, they, the complexity is taken away. And we offer uh, right now like three ways to do that. 
Hmm. So were, was that customer driven? Were they asking for different deployment models? Like you have some customers who want it one way, some customers who want it another. Was that the, the reason for sort of bifurcating that? Yeah, they're actually, it was twofold. One is the mm -hmm. customers and, and security became the first thing. They started saying, well, we, we want our data to reside on our own Azure tenant, mm -hmm. not on yours. And so customer, it was very customer driven. Um, to be very honest, it was also Microsoft seller driven and sellers are paid on how much Azure consumption their customers spent. And mm -hmm. so when everything was residing on our Azure tenant, it they weren't getting uh they weren't getting credit for that. And so sellers said, "Hey, is there any way that you can put this product on my customers Azure tenant so that so that I get paid for it?" Um so it was customers with the, wanting the security of on their own and then sellers. And between those two, we we just knew that that was something that we needed to to drive towards. Ah, interesting. Okay, cool. So it was it was driven, yeah, driven by customers, but that's the that's interesting too that it was driven specifically by the the data side. Um that's that's really interesting. Um any other services that you think are worth mentioning? I mean, you mentioned the the marketplace and like how that drove some of the decision making. Um but I don't know if we could, you know, sort of dive into the technology like is it mostly virtual machines and storage? Are there a lot of PaaS services? Like what does that look like? Yeah, so um, all of us, so everyone at Xamarin, we're very, we're a Microsoft shop through and through. Uh, most half of us are former Microsoft too. So mm -hmm. the uh, the we're all very extensive, um, uh, we're very familiar with Azure, and so our philosophy is largely if Microsoft can do it and take it off of us, we will engage. You know, so uh, we primarily use app services as, as our primary form of compute, um, but we use almost an extensive amount of, of pad services too from we use almost every language service definitely and every speech service um uh, and some of the cutting edge stuff we use azure communication services uh for handling calls um we use uh, obviously we have all kinds of storage and things like that um and uh but we also use some of the other uh not exactly the azure resources themselves but we use um, Azure Bicep, which is really, we're all real big fans of, um, and the underlying arm, obviously. Um, and so I think if you deploy, so if you do what we call Xamo on tenant, you know, um, is if you deploy an instance to, uh, our uh, customer tenant, it probably, I think the latest count is 50 plus resources get created. Um, we do things like to use Azure bot, you know, um, and we're perpetually doing that. Um, so I, I think. Uh, pretty much effectively what we did was when we built this is we took everything that we currently have, which is extensive, and then just made it into kind of a easy stamp that, that they could put into their tenant. Um, and uh, yeah, we check out pretty much every PaaS service that Azure comes out with and sees, is there a way for us to, you know, can we abstract away something that we currently do by hand? Um, uh, or is it something a customer would want? And as Stacey mentioned earlier too, is the platform, because it's a bot and it's easy to just kind of hook in little things that you want, um, it's also customer driven in that if they want something, um, we will be prepared to offer it. And so both on the PaaS side, if they want document translation or something like that as part of a bot flow, um, we can connect with that. But also two more on the security side too, is we've had people come in and they started using Azure Front Door. Um, a big public customer of ours. And so since some of our bots have to be by nature public facing, we have kind of a whole security model where we can take in their front door and things like that, which is aided by, you know, the marketplace sandbox model and stuff. So um, there's 
we're pretty much ready to use anything and everything. Yeah. As a Microsoft employee, thank you. <laughs> Go ahead, Stacey. Oh, I was just going to add to that just a little bit, if that's okay, and say mm -hmm. that, you know, Nick really like kind of alluded to the fact that uh, because it is really built on Azure, we do have the ease of adding those different services that the customers need driven by their use cases. Um, mm -hmm. So, for example, he mentioned document translation, but also things like uh, cognitive search or um, any of those things that a customer may need that serves their, their customers uh, were easily able to, you know, provide them with a, a connection to that. The, as you mentioned early on the call, AI very much in the news recently. Mm -hmm. um, so open AI, exactly the same way. Um, we have a, we have now a part of our POCs that we give to all customers. We're able to show them how easily they can incorporate uh, Azure open AI into their bot and use it in the form of like a fallback, right? So mm -hmm. the bot doesn't have an answer. They haven't programmed that into their, their content. So if instead of saying, I'm sorry, I don't know. They're able to use OpenAI to either point to a website or to documentation or to the, the web at large and get some sort of an answer. And so customers are really excited about those, those capabilities as well. Yeah, that's super cool. That would be kind of mind blowing because you're you're interacting with the bot and then you ask it some, you know, sort of random question and it comes back with an answer. That's got to be yeah. <laughs> as, a, as a consumer of that, that has to be pretty wild. So, you, and I know you mentioned two different models, and I think the I think the managed application is probably pretty straightforward. And but I but I was curious about the uh, the pricing model that you use, like for the uh, for the version where you would host everything in your own tenant. How do you what what does that pricing model look like? Yeah, so we have two primary public-facing uh, offers that mm -hmm. uh, that we have on the marketplace. Uh, we range from thirty-two to fifty-five thousand annually, and that's the license fee. And with each of those comes a set number of what we call user interactions. So a user interaction is every time that an end user engages with the boss, so whether they're speaking or whether they're typing into a chatbot, that is considered a user interaction. So each one uh, includes. A certain set number of those user interactions. Above and beyond that is a metered rate. And that metered rate is billed to the customer, again, through the Azure Marketplace on a monthly basis. So if they exceed that allowable amount that's included with the license that they've purchased, they are billed that metered rate and they just get that bill on a monthly basis through Azure. Okay. Okay. That's pretty straightforward. I am curious then. So the user interactions, it must be relatively predictable on your side then, right? Like the, if they're going to use 10,000 user interactions, then you, you have an estimate of like how much compute that will use and it's pretty linear. Does that, yeah, make, does most, that make sense? Most of it is uh, yeah. linear. And, and also too is um, an individual customer's workload for something like this is not like a big amount, you know, like right. we as Ammo, we have a lot of different customers, then it can get heavier. But uh, if they're deploying it to their instance or whatnot, it, it's not an extent, you know, 10,000 requests a minute would be a huge amount. Um, and that's obviously because, you know, where technology is today in cloud, um, it's not a meaningfully difficult thing to handle. Exactly. Yeah. I was just curious how you ended up passing on like your own costs onto them, but that makes, that makes perfect sense. Okay, cool. And then um, I'm curious, like what kind of challenges as you were building this that you, that you ran into and then were they mostly business? Were they technical? Was there, was the, or was there a mixture of challenges that you ran into? 
I can say from the business side, no, really there were, it was only benefits from the business side of uh, putting our products out there on the Azure marketplace. So I'll let Nick speak into some of the technical things. Yeah, the, the technical stuff, I think um, it went pretty well. We, and as we mentioned, we have two, we have kind of the Azure SaaS and Azure managed up the SaaS. Mm -hmm. um, the main challenge there was, okay, so now our billing system needs to be backed by our third party one, and it needs to be also backed by Azure, right? And we have kind of an abstraction over that. So, so building that out and getting it right, obviously anything dealing with money needs to be um, very secure and incredibly uh, consistent. Um, and so uh, just getting that right, I think was a little tricky uh, as, as to be expected as well. Um, the expectation too from the Microsoft side is once you a customer comes in and purchases a SaaS one, um, it's a very single, uh, it's a seamless kind of single sign-on transition from the mm -hmm. Azure portal into our portal. Um, and we use B2C. Um, and so that's, um, that was also could be slightly tricky just to get that authentication right where we kind of sub in a different, um, you know, a, a different issue or a different um, uh, federated account for that, that part. But those were like fairly small. I think the bigger difficulty was just kind of getting us to think a little differently about what we expect, right? Um, mm -hmm. And then the Azure managed app was a whole other can of worms, um, mainly because we had built a single, we had built a SaaS product for our instance of our Azure tenants. Um, and now we were kind of just taking out the foundation of that and the plumbing and then turning it into a packageable on tenant solution, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that took a very long time, I think from, but actually not in the grand scheme of things. I think from start to finish, we had me for most of it and one other engineer, it took us about eight months from zero to paying customer. Mm -hmm. um, and considering that the company was built not with any of this in mind, um, uh, I think we did a pretty good job in terms of turnaround um, there. And we built a lot of things behind, uh, behind the scenes as well. Um, so yeah, we could, I, we could spend an hour talking about uh, that entire project. Uh, right, um, right. But it makes but, sense, uh, by the way, why you're why you're a bicep expert, you know, with going through that, <laughs> turning it into a managed app and working over eight months. That makes a lot of sense now. Yeah, exactly. And none of us were like uh, huge infrastructure as code people or anything. We had like some small stuff, but um, the the scalability becomes just very different, right? The scalability on in that instance is more along the like, how do we bring customers on board? How do we process that? How do we update those? Mm -hmm. Whereas the scalability in our in our centralized SaaS tenant is more just like vertical, you know, uh, you know, uh, vertical nodes or excuse me, uh, horizontal nodes and things like mm -hmm. that. Um, and so whereas the individual tenant and if we had a very big customer we would probably scale it vertically right as opposed so it's a slightly kind of uh different things and just keeping all of that together um as and keeping a strong engineering culture around that that's that's where the challenges arise yeah so how did you get your engineers then to really think in a SaaS like manner i mean this is something you need to keep running 24 7 it's something where when you write a line of code, it sounds like it has to go into your centrally managed instance, plus it has to go into the code base that goes into the managed application. Like, how did you how did you get all the engineers to really understand, you know, the big picture there? Yeah, so that that's probably one of the things, too, we would focus on on how we would do things differently is we would maybe plan a lot more, but we could talk about that. But the uh, I think one of the key things we ended up doing is we spent a lot of time building out um, uh, ephemeral environments effectively. Mm -hmm. And so like um, since we were 
doing the infrastructure as code and kind of creating a deployable package, we said, okay, well, we might as well be able to do that anytime we want a PR too, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so we've effectively enforced the constraints at that level. So when you, you know, when you submit code to our primary, our, our primary repository, you can just do a little command and deploy an entire instance in a similar way that a customer would. And also when merge, we do it automatically and then we run integration tests against the, um, uh, the environment that we just created, then we tear it down and we package everything up. Um, and so I think the the big thing was, is when we, that was a really what allowed us to make the switch from like, okay, this is a project that me and someone else are doing to now this is the way the company thinks. And a lot of that was like each of the stands up to listening to is like, if someone was like, oh, we're building a feature in this way, really zoning it or kind of like focusing in on that and being like having every engineer say, how is this going to affect Zot, like the XAML on Tenet? Um, how is this going to affect it? You know, any infrastructure change, little infrastructure changes too, that used to just be uh, the purview of an individual developer are now set in infrastructure as code and will now have like the concept of breaking changes uh, has been brought to our infrastructure, you know, um, as a result of this. And so um, there's, I think, the technical side that we bring those failures as close to writing code as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's the, the cultural and process side, which is like every single person needs to take the responsibility for when they make a change, they have to ask, how will this affect a customer or tenant? Mm -hmm. I love that. It sounds like very mature thinking. Like I can tell whenever I talk to, to companies about like th what they've gone through, how they have this process set up and the detail that they go into, I can tell where they're at on that journey. And it sounds like you're pretty far into it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Very I think kind of have to be. Yeah. Yeah. So then, um, my next question is really around scale. Like, how do you, how do you make it so that I, I know you said that like each one, you know, is, is kind of a small transaction and doesn't require a lot of compute, but I'm sure an aggregate really starts to add up. So how do you scale this and how do you think in a scalable way? Yeah, I think there's, there's two sides of it. There's some business sides. I'm sure Stacey will get into, but the, from the technical side, uh, the scaling comes in the process around updating and monitoring. Right. Um, so we built out kind of an update system. One thing the marketplace is a little, um, there's some uh, some room for growth there is that it doesn't have a formal update process. So when someone deploys, the updates are kind of up to us. We have like a, a, a fairly built out um, template spec situation that will update um, all of the infrastructure as well as the latest version of the code on a customer tenant. It stamps the assemblies too. And we have ways to kind of access what version they're on. Um, and, and then as well as observability too. There's a couple different ways where we monitor alerts and logging on the actual tenant, how those bubble up to us in cases of emergency. Um, and so it really is um, what used to, when we were a very small company, um, uh, since I've been since the beginning, what was fine with people just monitoring failures and app insights, you know, uh, is now has to be processized. Like every single piece has to have a formal process. We now have, uh, we also have started, you know, we build our own um, uh, monitoring apps that like monitor the instances that are out there and things like that. And so um, the technical side, um, the scalable stuff is we're just now getting into that where we need to scale the centralized SaaS um, service horizontally, and then we need to scale sometimes our customer instances vertically. Mm -hmm. We're just now kind of entering how do we do that, but I know the answer, um, it's process, right? Uh, it, it, it's a mature process of checking it and things like that. And so rolling over those, uh, rolling our own tools where there was a gap, 
um, was imperative because um, in this there isn't a lot of pre-built stuff for things like this, right? Mm -hmm. The expectation is you build it yourselves, and we just had to be committed about spending the time and allocating the time to do those things because if not, I mean, um, if something happens on their instance, like we are the only ones, there's no one else out there uh, to protect them. Right, exactly. And then Stacy, I don't know if you want to talk about scale on the business side. Yeah, and this gives me a great opportunity to uh, praise our engineers a little bit because what they have done is taken the feedback from our interactions with the customers and made a product that makes it very easy to scale. Um, so before, you know, we were running into, well, the customers want to be able to they not only want to be able to build content, but they want to be able to test it. And they want to be able to see their content in there when we present a POC. They don't just want to see a generic POC. And so we now have this product where we can get information from a customer who says, hey, I'd like to, um, this is my use case. And we can turn around a POC that shows uh, live agent integration and uh, multilingual and document translation and whatever it is that they want in 24 hours. And um, it's really cool because we can show that to them on IVR. We can show it to them on a chatbot. We can show it to them on a voice assistant. And I could continue to go on there. But the, they've done a really fantastic job of really making the product scalable. And then from that, once we have we have grabbed their attention in these in these customer meetings, then they say, okay, well, yeah, but what about procurement? And we're like, oh, all you have to do is go to the Azure Marketplace, and it's a direct relationship between you and Microsoft. You don't even have to get procurement through Zamo, and they're just like, oh my word, this is so easy. And so it really has become a very scalable, simple process um, from that side of the house. Mm. Yeah, a manager of mine from years and years ago, he always told me it's all about the demo. Like half the work I did was just, you know, for, to make the demo awesome. And I I love that you've built you've built your scale and the way that you create like these ephemeral instances in such a way that like you sort of get the demo for free. Yeah. <laughs> that is absolutely. that is that is really nice. I really because, like that. Because what we can do is once we present that demo to the customer and they like it, we turn that over to them and and they can just take what was, has already been built for the demo and they can build from that. So it really kind of gives them that really good starting point to work from. Very cool. Very cool. And then let's talk about security. Like what um, what did your process look like for, you know, securing this and just how do you continue to build the application in a secure way? Yeah, it's a tricky question. Um, anytime that you have access to somebody's tenant, no matter how much, it's obviously a sensitive thing. So um, what I will say is I think customers are pretty are put at ease just the fact that it lives there, right? Mm -hmm. They can reject our access at any time. Um, and so by putting the some of the sensitive data, these conversations can be sensitive depending on the customer, you know, um, and in general, any sort of interaction uh, with a user. And so we just by putting it on their tenant, there's a lot uh, that's taking it off, uh, you know, that puts their minds at, at ease. Um, but as well, the sandbox model that Microsoft has developed around the marketplace is pretty robust. Um, uh, sometimes like a compiler, you get a little frustrated with it, you know, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. but you know, it's kind of saving you in the end. Um, and so we're pretty heavy in terms of, uh, obviously we have a lot of internal controls on who has access to this very few people, um, as well is we focused a lot on everything. So how it works at a technical level is you create kind of a little resource and it'll say Zamo, it's a managed app. 
And then it it's tied to it as a managed resource group. And that's where like everything actually lives. And so we restrict the user's access to that resource group to, you know, ensure that it, um, they're not messing with things. Um, and then we restrict our own access to it as well. So you can do kind of a just-in-time access where we request access to the resource group from the user. Um, or we can have some uh, ones where we're monitoring it more likely or we're more, um, more hands-on where we update it constantly. Um, but even then, a lot of the secrets um, and things like that that we need that are very sensitive are stored in key vaults that we don't have access to. So they've created a very nice um, kind of, there is a place where we can dump programmatic secrets um, where the user, where the, the customer knows that we don't actually have access to them um, and they have access to them. And then there's areas where we can put things where that uh, like code and RIP that they don't have access to that we do have access to, right? So it's a it's a nice two way street there, um, and uh, and then also is we're very tight around. We have like one or two things that need to be public because it's obviously a public facing bot, um, and um, but we're really tight about uh, the requests that go in and out of that. Um, and our last principle is mainly just um, do everything in that managed resource group. Don't communicate outside of it, communicate within it, behind VNets and everything like that. Like as limited, you know, as deep into the sandbox as you can, that's where the extent, uh, that's where most of the things would go. And so I know those are more philosophy things as opposed to like specifics, um, but um, that is kind of how you have to think. You just uh, kind of have to assume that um, you want to take a layered approach, you know, and the human stuff is usually where the problems arise for security anyways. You know, so. <laughs> exactly. Those pesky humans. <laughs> And then when, yeah, whenever you first went into, into production with the application, were there any surprises? Like once, you know, once you flip that switch to, to actually go live? I, I can give you a couple from the, from the business side. Um, the first one would be, uh, the way that Microsoft pays ISVs. Not, not that this is a bad thing at all, but it was just a little bit of a surprise. And for anybody that's listening and considering doing this might be valuable to know, which is, um, let's say we have a, a customer who purchases, uh, our SaaS offering, uh, maybe on January 15th and they, uh, they don't, their Azure bill, next, their next bill, maybe they're on a semi-annual billing cycle or whatever that might be, isn't until June 1st. Well, then we don't get paid until June 1st. And so, um, again, not that that's an issue at all, but it was just a little bit of a surprise um, as to how that would all, you know, how that would all function. So um, once we figured that out, everything was was good to go. The second thing would be Again, back to billing is, so we started again with the SaaS where we could bill uh, annually because that's how enterprises are used to paying is an annual license fee. And then once uh, Nick and the team got really involved in putting out the, the managed application, we learned that managed applications can only be billed monthly. So, so that was kind of a, a shock and a surprise. And that took some working to figure out how that would work with the sellers and as far as the customers and everything. But again, not a big deal. And we were able to work with it, but it did come as a surprise just because we weren't expecting mm -hmm. that yeah no it's good good lessons for for everybody who's listening for sure and then nicholas anything uh, you wanted to mention yeah i mean in a big project like this there's always there's always going to be things that are a little surprising uh i think one of the bigger ones was um i think something like a lot of us we develop in sprints now right mm -hmm. you develop on the short term and, and that allows you to increment and, and release quickly 
something like this isn't really conducive to that, you know? So, um, in certain senses, you're, we're kind of like, well, let's just get a working product out there or like a little, an MVP out there and just get it working. But the reality is, is especially when you're like pulling out the entire plumbing of like a SaaS application and changing it is, um, you, you have to kind of plan a lot longer in advance, I think. Um, so I think there was a few features or I think as, as you're incrementing, there's some things you trick yourself and you're like, ah, we, we might not need that. You know, this is one of those situations where you ain't going to need it was wrong, you know, and <laughs> we ended up having to roll our own certain observability things, certain update processes, um, that ended up being really kind of the linchpin of a lot of, uh, a lot of this, um, were those things that I thought that we might be able to kind of skirt around with a little, um, uh, with more of an incremental process, but we, uh, you, Anytime you're deploying something to a tenant that you don't own, uh, you should you should be prepared to build a lot of plumbing. Mm -hmm. I have I have heard that before, and I've heard just in general the monitoring. It's one way to tell if a a company is mature is around like the the way that they think about monitoring and the way that their monitoring is set up. Because if you don't know what's going on, I mean, it's really hard to affect what's happening when you're when you're in production. Absolutely. And look, everybody's been there. You know, every one of us who's ever developed code has been that like, wait, how does that work? Like, how is it working right now? You know, like you realize some little thing should have broken months ago, you know? Um, and there's a lot of times where you're just like, man, that should, you know, or something broke that you thought was used more frequently and you found out later, you know, so um, observability and then maintaining customer tech. I mean, those are huge, huge things. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, that's where the little surprises, I think, kind of um, pop. Uh, popped up, but in hindsight, they probably should, probably should have expected it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then is there anything else that any, either of you wanted to mention any lessons for anybody listening or any other comments, uh, that, that you're, you're dying to get out there? I would just say, and Nick might disagree with me, although I think he won't, but, uh, I know it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work on the, the engineering side and it's a lot of work on the business side, but in the end, it's worth it. Uh, we have seen a significant growth in business and a much faster time uh, to close uh, based on having our products in the marketplace. And because sellers are incentivized, they're out there talking about us a lot more. And so is it a lot of work? Do you, do you have to put a lot of resources towards it? Absolutely. The answer is yes. But is it worth it? I would say absolutely also. Mm -hmm. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, when customers start asking for something like this, you kind of get put on a path and you should probably uh, expect that um, we found it to be very beneficial. If you have a, if you have any sort of enterprise customer base, this type of model, like giving them more control over the data, giving them, allowing them to pay in the manner in which they want to pay, like via Azure takes a lot of headaches off us. Those two things are big. And so if any of them kind of, uh, uh, if they resonate with you, you should, uh, you should take a look at this. Um, and then when you do also like kind of dive in fully, you know, once you go that, that was, I think our mistake is kind of, we jumped a little, you know, a little bit at a time and, and I would have, uh, in hindsight, which is understandable, right? Like you want to make sure this investment is not, uh, or is worthwhile. Um, uh, but it would have probably helped us a little bit if we had planned, um, for just diving in, um, for a year out, you know, and, and gone from there. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Okay, cool. So I have a lot of links in here. I will include all of those in the show notes for you. And then for anybody who is uh, listening, where can they go to see your product? 
the it's called it's at uh, app app.zamo.ai and that will lead you to a login screen where you can use your Microsoft account to uh, authenticate and create a free account you can play around you can create content and then you can use the what we call the simulator to actually test it on all those different channels that I mentioned so that is all free to use and and to do and then of course we are always available to assist if uh, the product looks interesting and they want to learn more perfect yeah zamo is a is a is an amazing name i really love it <laughs> so stacy and nick thank you so much for coming on here and talking to me about SaaS and about the the process that you went through in building this it's really fascinating so thank you so much thank Thanks you